everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Alison Grunendijk. So, hey, we are in the middle of a series called Happy Together, and interestingly, it's not really what it appears on the surface because we have actually been taking a deep dive into some of the unhappy emotions that we feel that actually cause a barrier to us living well together. And so we've heard about being good listeners. We've heard about how we have this deep-seated desire to control people, especially the people that are closest to us and that we love. And then last week, Amos led us through this beautiful space of bringing our grief to Jesus, but doing that corporately to create a space to say, I'm not okay, you're not okay, I'm sad, you're sad, and we can do this together, and God shows up in new and beautiful and refreshing ways when we do that. And so today we get to tackle maybe another somewhat uncomfortable topic, so hang with me if you can. Uh, We're going to talk about shame. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, where our story begins to kind of see how shame actually leads to our unhappiness and what it does to unravel our interactions with each other. But I'm just going to pray quick, and then we will dive into the Bible. So, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and fill this room right now. We just so long to be with you, to hear from you. So I ask that you would speak, that you would meet us, that you would come and do your good work of changing us into more of who you've created us to be, God. And I pray that all fear would just go now in the name of Jesus, that we would be able to show up and learn from you today. So thanks for teaching us in advance. Amen. All right. So before we jump into Genesis, I want to just give you a working definition of shame to start uh, because I think that shame and guilt are really hard to tease out sometimes. And I know from my own uh, self, I've been on this journey of realizing that they are different. I was actually sitting with my coach recently, uh, and she asked me, In those moments where you're feeling shame and guilt, do you think that you can actually hear the difference between the voice of shame and the voice of guilt? And I realized, no, I can't. They're so blended for me. I I jump right over the guilt and only hear the shame. And so I want us to see that they are different, but then also recognize like maybe how we're getting confused and maybe how this is keeping us more entrapped. Um, And so this definition of shame comes from Brené Brown, a great researcher and teacher out of Houston that's done a lot of work on this. Uh, And it's an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And so the shame is telling us, uh, you are not enough. You are not lovable. You are bad. Guilt, on the other hand is also experienced often as a feeling or an experience, but it is a recognition or an awareness that we have committed an offense. 
So guilt is, I can recognize I've done something wrong, but guilt drives us to say, and I'm sorry for that. Guilt drives us to say, I want to seek forgiveness for how I have made you feel or the offense that I've done to you. Uh, So guilt is actually driving us toward each other in those moments, or it can, when we're brave enough to confess that we've done something wrong, whereas shame always wants to drive us away. So just to lay that groundwork, I want you to think of that and notice where that's happening in this story when we go to Genesis. So let's jump in. We're going to start in Genesis 3, and the first two chapters of the Bible are talking basically about God creating beautiful things. He has been up to the work of creating. It's amazing that he doesn't first reveal himself as um, a forgiver or as a savior or as our rescuer. He reveals himself as a creator. He is making good and beautiful things. And so that's the work he's been doing up until this point. And the last sentence before chapter three, he's created man and woman, Adam and Eve, And it says, now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then this is where we pick up in our story. So I'm going to read the first 10 verses to you. All right. Chapter three. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And she replies, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You will not die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. All right, so there's a lot happening in this passage. And what I want to do this morning is just pull a few key noticings from this about the nature of shame, how it works, and then get really practical about what this can look like as a community to try to live into our shame in ways that are healthy and bring healing. So the first thing to notice here is that doubt actually causes relational rupture. So we have this interaction between the serpent and the woman, and what he is doing, I think it's really important to notice here, he is not asking a question to find out facts, as you and I might do 
What's your favorite color? What's the weather like outside? We actually want information back. That is not the intention of the serpent in this moment. He is in, he's intentionally trying to cause an emotional shift or rupture in her that gets her to start doubting God, but also doubting her relationship with God. So it's subtle, right? So in our lives, it might look like this. I'm getting ready for work. I'm going to give a big presentation. Today is the day of my big presentation, and I'm wondering how people are going to respond to it. And so I'm sharing this with my coworker, and the coworker says, well, did you get all your statistics in your PowerPoint? Did you make sure you have all the stats in there? And that's a question that then can cause me to doubt and say, oh, gosh, I don't feel prepared. What if I did mess up? What if I left something out? I'm not prepared. I doubt I'm going to get this promotion. It's just this really quick, subtle turn of our attention off of the goodness of what we're doing and into a space of doubting, am I okay with you and are you okay with me? And we do this, right? We, we doubt that we can lose weight. We doubt that our marriage will survive. We doubt that our kid is going to get into the right college. And underneath that is this worry. And I think we are worrying because we realize I'm not enough. Something in me is inadequate to bring to the situation to get the result I want. I feel like no matter what I do, something is not going to be enough. And so we see, like, shame is already in her mind at this moment, causing her to doubt the status of her relationship. And so in this mental space, shame is speaking, and it leads to isolation. And so the next thing that you see happening is that the serpent is inviting Eve to consider the question of, did God really say that by herself? He's not saying, again, well, we just need to get the facts straight. Because if that was really what he was wondering about, he would say, well, why don't you just wait till you see God again when he comes walking through the garden, and then you can just fact check with God and make sure you got the rules straight about which fruit you can eat and which you can't. That would be a question just out of a space of needing information. But he wants... Eve to start being alone in her mind, to start having that conversation with herself and driving her into that space of isolation. And so one of the things that we see is she starts wondering if God gave me an instruction that I cannot have something, that now I'm questioning, why is he withholding me? Why is he withholding this from me? She necessarily makes the jump to God doesn't want me to be like him. Because in her response, she says, I'm not supposed to eat the fruit or even touch the tree or I'll die. Well, that's not actually what God said, but in her own mind, she starts getting the facts twisted and starts telling maybe a slightly different version of the story. And so in that space where then 
the serpent comes back and says, no, you're not going to die. He's, he's trying to get her to see God does not want you to be like him. Because if you eat of that fruit, then the Bible tells us that you will become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And so he's getting Eve to say, God is withholding something from me. And she has no other reason to doubt that before he plants that doubt in her mind. Because God is a good God. She's living in the space of joy with him. She's enjoying all the fruit. She's enjoying the animals. She's enjoying the creation. She knows that she is loved. And she has no reason to doubt that God would give her what she needs until the serpent comes and plants that. And so... Even though shame is primarily a neurophysiological thing that we experience, it happens to us, it happens to all of us in a moment, it's not just something that happens to me. It happens between you and me. And so we see that shame needs something outside of me to trigger it. Again, before the serpent entered the stage, they, Adam and Eve were together, they were naked, they felt no shame. The serpent comes in and says, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. There's something that is so broken, that's so flawed, that God doesn't want you. You're not that important to him. You are not enough. And so, again, we don't draw these conclusions on our own. We have to have someone outside of us giving us that message. And here's the thing. It doesn't actually even need words. It can just be a glance. The research has actually shown us that babies, um, even at age 15 months, can feel shame. They don't have a very you know, developed language system at that point but they can sense it in their person just by a glance. It doesn't have to be words. It can be a turning of the face away. But it is provoked on the outside, and its primary mechanism is to drive us into isolation. Somewhere we picked up a message that we are not enough. And it's interesting. I was actually just talking to someone right before the service started, and he was sharing, didn't really even know I was going to talk on this topic of shame, and he was sharing something, and he said, you know, I was in a band, I've been a performer for a long time, and I realized way back when I was a teenager, my parents came to one of my shows, and the, for whatever reason, the message went through my head, you, are an, you look stupid up here, you look like an idiot up on this stage. And he said, I carried that for years until I sat with somebody who could help me change the narrative, who could help me tell a different story. So I think shame is universal. That's what this passage is telling us. If you are not aware of your shame voice, hopefully you're going to be more <laughs> aware of it at the end of this talk today. But we all are carrying places in us where we really believe we're not enough, we're not going to measure up, and that someone's going to find us out. And the thing is, is that actually the shame attendant, as I like to think of it, is like a little person who's sitting on my shoulder feeding me these things, only gets louder when we hide ourselves, when we run, and when we isolate. 
which we see Adam and Eve doing in this, in this passage. So at this point, you might be thinking, okay, why does this matter? We're in a series called Happy Together. I'm just trying to figure out you. You're trying to figure out me, how we're going to relate to each other. Why does this matter? What does this help us see? This really stuck out to me when I was reading this passage, and I just want to go back to it a second, that doubt leads to shame, and it's actually the shame that Eve is feeling in this moment that leads to her disobedience, that leads to her saying, I need to eat this fruit, which I was told is not good for me. And the serpent in the story just redirects Eve's attention to the fruit, And again, like I said, there was no reason she would have wanted it before she was doubting that God was good and could give that to her. So you might be thinking, well, why why should I look at my shame? Why would I do this? This sounds terrible. It's it's an intensely painful feeling. I don't want to look at it. I don't want you to look at it. Why should we care? And I think it's because we often try to come at behavior modification using guilt. Like, I just need to feel bad enough that I did this wrong thing, and I need to apologize enough and say I'm sorry, and then somehow my behavior is going to change in that, and I won't be bad to you next time. This is actually the story we tell ourselves. And it's kind of like the reason why the Just Say No to Drugs campaign, in my opinion, was not actually that effective, because just saying no to drugs is only using my logical left brain side of my thinking, it's not at all addressing the right brain that wants to do the drugs. So we have to get under the thing under the thing and not look necessarily at, well, why does Eve want this? But you see that she first feels the disconnection. God doesn't want me to be like him. There's something wrong with me. I'm being told no, and I don't like that feeling. And this, this guttural sensation is rising up from within her limbic system, which is way faster than your thinking part of your brain. And I know we all know this. We, we react out of strong emotion that we're trying to shove down, and later we're like, that doesn't even make sense. Why would I have said that, done that? Looking back on it now, it makes no sense. It's not logical. Well, you're right, because in that moment... Shame has hijacked your logical brain, and you're just acting out of a coping mechanism to get yourself to feel better. And that is what the serpent in the story wants to do to Eve. He doesn't want her to be able to rationalize through the decision. He wants her to sit in the feeling of shame. So... My own bad coping mechanisms lead me to shame other people. So that's when we get into the shame cycle. And that's really why I want us to look at this today. Um, And you know how this goes. I'll just give you an example from my own life. This is the favorite example, I guess, between Amos and I. So you'll, you'll know this well. The dishes one, right? It's always the dishes. Why does it always start with the dishes? I don't know. But... I'm trucking along my week, and I'm realizing, man, I can't keep up with the dishes this week. There's just something about it that is making me overwhelmed. And so my shame attendant comes on and says, yep, you're always behind. What is wrong with you? 
That's the, that's the shame voice. There's something wrong with me. What is wrong with you that you keep falling behind? And so I can't ever keep this kitchen clean. That's what I'm feeling. So I then, out of my own shame, go to Amos and I say, Amos, I, re- I see that you're really behind in the laundry. There's like dirty laundry all the floor. Like Isla's stuff is n- nasty. There's poopy clothes in the sink over here and I don't have any clean pants and what's going on? And so we quickly turn to, I'm trying to deal with my own shame of the dishes not being done, and now I've attacked Amos for the dirty laundry. And of course, then what does he say back to me? He says, well, you know, your dishes are piling up, and there's a bunch of crud stuck on there, and you didn't quite scrub it good enough, and there's no clean bottles for Isla, and it just goes back and forth like this. So we see the shame spiral start to happen. And again, I'm jumping right over the guilt of like, well, yeah, I really should have done a better job. I'm sorry, Amos. I will work on the dishes. That would be like the thing that would help me stay relationally connected. It would be an apology. We could stay together. We could have um, connection and notice that I did incur an offense. I did something wrong, but it doesn't have to break our relational connection. But instead, I jump right over that, and I think yeah, I'm terrible at the dishes. I am never going to be the wife that Amos wants. And that's my shame voice. And at this point, we all know that it's clearly not about the dishes anymore or the laundry. My shame voice is fully engaged, and what I'm hearing is, you're not important to Amos. You'll never be the wife he really wants. He doesn't really care about you. It sounds crazy, but that is where I go. And what I have realized is that is the voice of shame. That is a voice that's wanting to keep me isolated, keep me away from Amos. And after I do my fight responses, I do the blaming. And eventually this is like not working. We're just going, we're just one-upping each other in the blame cycle. And so then eventually I go from fight to flight. And I'm like, fine, I'm out. I'm leaving. And this is not to say that taking a time out to cool down is not okay. That's actually a great tool to do. But I go into a space of hiding when the pain of my being seen in in my inadequacy is just so high that I can't be in the room with him anymore. And I go somewhere else. But you know what is really, really funny? What I've noticed is after I cool down, after my emotions come down and I'm at equilibrium, I sit there by myself, and I start to wonder, is he going to come back? Is he going to come look for me? And I actually have done this where I I watch the clock. I'm like, I'm going to give him two minutes. And so I've got my phone there, and I'm like, I don't hear him. I don't hear him walking toward the door. Okay, Uh, two more minutes. Nope, I still don't hear him. And sometimes he comes, and sometimes he doesn't. And that's not to say that it's even fair of me to expect him to chase me when I'm the one that's made the the space, right? That's not actually healthy. But, But isn't it crazy that in my shame, the thing I want is actually to be found. I want someone to come and see me. And so Isla reminds me of this all the time. And actually, I was playing a game of peekaboo with her yesterday. Yes, there she is. Great. So uh, she hides behind the couch. And then I say, 
where's Isla? And then she waits just a nanosecond because she's too excited. She can't like wait long enough to make the game actually fun. So I say, where's Isla? And she's like, she's already halfway out. She's like, ah, here I am. And I, I say, here, here, there she is or something like that. She pops her head out. This is actually a picture of her when she first was learning to do that. Um, but isn't that just a great face? Look at her face. And when I look at this picture, this reminds me, like, we were created for the joy of being found and being known. There is so much joy on her face because she just wants to see me seeing her. She wants to be found by me. And so we are born looking for someone looking for us. And that never stops. This shows how, as a baby, she is unfiltered. She's not ashamed to say, I want you to see me. I want to come out from hiding. But because we mess up and we hurt each other, the threat of relational breakdown is real. And we learn to get pretty good at hiding as adults. And so our peekaboo antics that were really cute in infancy develops into a lot more sophisticated game of hide and seek. I know we've probably all played hide-and-seek as a kid. That's what you play maybe when you're in elementary school. So you grow out of the peekaboo phase as a baby. You play hide-and-seek, and you're, you're wanting to get, like, the best hiding spot, right? And you're going to show your friends, like, yeah, you can't find me. But the reality is the game would be terrible if you just never were found because you would just be sitting, like, out in some pasture or yard or nook and cranny of your attic or your basement all alone going, like, nobody came, that, that's actually like you're not winning that game. You're losing. That's not good. But we get really good at hiding, emotionally hiding as adults. We hide behind laughter. We hide behind jokes, coarse language. We hide behind the tough guy or the tough girl mask. We hide behind our busyness. We hide behind the needs of our children. We hide behind our career goals. We are good at hiding. And yet, notice God's response. In verse 9, he's, he realizes Adam and Eve have covered themselves with fig leaves, and they're hiding. And he calls out, where are you? They can sense God's presence in the garden. It says when they noticed that he was walking in the cool of the garden in the evening, they, they knew he was there and they went and hid. But God says, where are you? And isn't that funny? Because obviously he's God. Have you thought about this? Like he's God. He actually, he knows where they are. He knows why they're there. He knows how it feels to be there. He knows all the methods that they have tried to hide, and they came up with the leaves. But God is saying, I am looking for you. That's his first reaction. It's not reprimand or punishment or shame on you. The shame is not coming from God, right? He doesn't say, shame on you, you shouldn't have done that. He says, I see you. I know you're hiding, and I'm coming for you. I'm going to look for you. 
Kurt Thompson is one of my favorite authors and speakers. He is a uh, psychologist. He has his own practice in the DC area. Um, and I actually had the privilege of hearing him speak on this topic of shame, and it's amazing. So his book, Soul of Shame, I recommend highly. I'm going through it with a group of people right now. But one of the best quotes on there, I think, is this. He says, to relationally confront our shame requires that we risk feeling it on the way to its healing. So what does this mean practically for us? What is this going to look like in our community? Well, it really boils down to we need friends, we need people who ask us, where are you? Where are you? The true you. Where are you hiding? And to let people in is to allow someone else to carry your shame with you. It's this idea of feeling felt by other people. So it's me, it's not me just seeing you or you seeing me. It's me seeing you seeing me. There's a lot of seeing happening in there. Are we following that? I'm looking at Leela and I'm seeing her look back at me. I am feeling felt, I am being known in my place of shame. And this actually does something to our brains. It tells our brains, you are not alone in the world. You are important, you are wanted. And so there's just so much hope in this because you and I, as we sit together in these spaces, I can start telling a different story because of you that I couldn't tell if you weren't in the room with me. I would be stuck, just like Eve was, in my own brain trying to make sense of the world, make sense of God. And when we isolate, I can tell myself anything. I, it's all up to me. I get to decide who you are and what you think of me. Right? But if I start coming into relationship and I let myself experience you, Eddie, you, Abigail, you, Rich, as who you really are, my brain is learning a different narrative. It's starting to undo the toxic stories that I want to say and that I want to believe about you and about myself. And you know what? This is, this is the stunning design of God and how he made our brains. For a long, long time, researchers, doctors, neuroscientists, they all thought that once something was damaged in your brain, that was, that was it. That part will never function again. It won't come back online. It won't be able to be connected. It's just dead tissue. It's really only been in recent years where we have realized, no, when someone has a stroke, that part of their brain can be rerouted to make new neural connections with other parts of the brain to actually bring that function back online, to wake up again, in a sense. That is amazing. And so it's like in the same way that my brain can heal from an injury or an insult, you and I can heal from our emotional trauma just by making a new connection by being in a relationship with you and me. We're not just stuck in these damaged parts of ourselves. 
we can heal from traumatic events and our brains can be remapped. And that is what neuroscience is showing us. And I just love that because that's a spiritual truth, but our bodies live it. It's an embodied reality that, that my brain actually is doing the work of connecting. It's not just an idea or a concept. There's something actually physiologically happening when we're in the room together. And, and that is actually how I have experienced just the tiniest bit of freedom, like just these little nano steps towards getting free of my shame is sitting in rooms with people where I can say whatever I need to say, and I know, not through their words, but through their faces, through their embodied presence with me, they're telling me, there is nothing you can say to me right now that will make me want to leave. I'm here, I'm with you, I'm for you, and I'm staying. I will not cut and run. I think that is what it's going to take. And I just so want this for you and me. I want this for our church. I want you all to experience this, this idea where you can bring your shame, the things that you are so sick of living with in yourself, and you can show those to each other. And you can be met not with judgment or fixing or more ideas or more information, you can be met with acceptance and loving attention. And I think God wants to make us those people. But the kicker is, this happens brain to brain and face to face. It has to happen face to face. If you think about it, we are super vulnerable people. It's actually not a choice to be vulnerable. It's just who you are as a human. You don't, like everybody says, like, I don't know if I can choose to be vulnerable. Well, newsflash, you just are. You are just vulnerable. We are animals, mammals who put clothes on ourselves. We build shelters for ourselves to try to combat the, the elements outside because we are vulnerable. But the thing I realized this week is our faces are not clothed. We put clothes most other places on our body, but our faces are uncovered. And so when I sit with you face to face, you are seeing me. And interestingly, fun fact, you only need five facial muscles to survive, like to breathe, chew your food, swallow, only five facial muscles, but God gave us 43 of them. And I think it's because not through our words, but through our face, when we're sitting face-to-face -face with each other, we can see all the nuances of how we're really feeling. And it's very, you all know this. You've been in situations where you're like, I'm feeling something really deeply, and it's coming. It's coming to the surface. I want to hide it, but my face is flushing, or I, my eyes are, are getting big, or my jaw wants to drop and hit the floor, and I really want to put it back up. You can't hide because your face is vulnerable. And what a gift to see each other face to face. This matters so much. That's why what we're doing right now matters so much. This community, being able to sit and see each other in the same room, matters. And we should never give that up. It's great to have technology. It's great to watch a podcast. But it will never replace this, what you all are doing right now. You are bringing your full embodied selves in front of each other and in front of God. And that matters. And if I still haven't convinced you, I want you to watch a very short two-minute clip. 
because the field of developmental psychology also backs this up in something called the still face experiment. So check this out. In the still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I like a girl. Oh. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. Yeah. Yeah. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world, and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay. I deliberated showing you that because it's a little, it's really sad. It definitely is emotional for me to watch. So my question is, what face do you want to see from people? And what face do you want to offer each other? I just think this so beautifully shows us that we regulate our emotions and really all of our lived experience uh, through seeing each other brain to brain and face to face. And as traumatic as that is to watch that baby uh, just lash out in distress of having that disconnection, that perceived disconnection, you see when the mom re-engages, there's healing happening. There is reconnection possible. And you know what? God has a face. And actually, often in the Old Testament, uh, there is a command, an invitation to seek God's face. And the Hebrew word for face there is not just his face, it's his whole presence. It's the presence of God. So when we say, you know, I hear God seek your face, your face I will seek, that kind of call and response. It's this idea of seek my whole presence. And that was all they had in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he has a face. We see Jesus face to face. And in Hebrews 12.2, it says, because of the joy that was awaiting Jesus, he endured the cross, disregarding its what? It's shame. 
There's lots of things that God in the person of Jesus is accomplishing on that cross. Yes, he is dying for our sins. He is making Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Painful moment of my death on the cross. And I, the thing that I just want to leave you with is Jesus' death on the cross was actually not a lot like the artists portray it to be. Most of them, that is. Some of them actually, I think, give us a pretty accurate picture. But a lot of the art that's done around Jesus' death on the cross shows him way up high on a cross, elevated many, many, many feet off the ground, up on a hill with a nice loincloth that is perfectly placed so that he's not fully exposed. And that's kind of what we picture when we think of the death of Jesus. But this practice of crucifixion was actually intended to cause maximal shame to both the person who was dying and everybody who saw it happening. So the cross was actually only a few feet off the ground and only a few feet off the main road to the city. So it would be like the Schuylkill. The cross would be right off the Schuylkill Expressway, and we all know how slow that is. So you would have ample time to, like, sit and take this in and throw your trash out the window or whatever to just maximally shame this person who was dying. And Jesus did not have a loincloth on in that place. He was fully exposed it was a place of maximal shame. And he says, I'm enduring it because there is joy. There is joy ahead of you. That joy that you saw in the baby's face, the joy that you see on Isla, my daughter's face, when she is found and seen, that is what God went to the cross to give us back. That is what he's working for. And he knows my shame doesn't necessarily go away. We don't eradicate it. It's just muted. It's disregarded, and what that word means is like it is of lesser importance when compared to the greater thing, which is the joy that we have in relationship with him. He went to the cross because he thought it was so worth it to restore that relationship with you. And that is what we can do for each other today. And so as the worship team is coming up now, uh, I want us to just take a moment to consider with God how we might start to get free from our shame. And so I want you to just settle into a moment of stillness, whatever it takes for you to get actually quiet and still in your body. And close your eyes if that is helpful. And I want you to just think for a moment about a place in your story where you are convinced that if someone really knew the whole truth, that they would leave. So I'm asking you to, do, to just be brave for a moment. See if God will highlight what that thing might be for you.
And now if you can start to picture yourself in that event, in that experience, see if you can also picture Jesus on the scene with you. Where is he and what's he doing? And now just consider what would Jesus, what would a compassionate Jesus want to say to you about that moment? Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.